Turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Still on our marriage theme this morning, looking at this entire section, verses 22 through 33. I'm going to read the whole thing for us in just a minute. I wish my wife were here to hear this this morning, but uh, you can tell her. I've got the most wonderful marriage in the world. And the reason is because I know a secret. Here it is, active church participation. Don't laugh, it will blow your mind when you see this. I've never seen it in a marriage book, and I've read about 30 of them. But active church participation, I'm not talking about church attendance, active church participation is the secret to a wonderful marriage. Imagine with me a candle that never burns. Imagine... A flower that never blooms. Imagine a bluebird that never sings. And you have imagined a marriage without active participation in church. As a candle, you can have style, you can have function, and never burn. But you're going to miss Warmth and light. As a flower, you can have style, you can have function, and never bloom. But you're going to miss beauty and fragrant aroma. As a bluebird, you can have style, you can have function, and never sing. But you're going to miss melody and sound. And so many marriages have lots of style and lots of function, but they are missing beauty and light and warmth and melody and harmony and there's just so much more for us in marriage and the secret there is active church participation. Let me show you this by reading for you Ephesians 5. It It's unbelievable to me at the number of times I've read this passage and not seen this. But verses 22 through 33, that's 12 verses, right? In 12 verses, the church is mentioned 12 times. And though this is the most popular passage in all of Scripture to talk about husband and wife roles, I bet you've never heard the church, and yet it's mentioned 12 times. If I only have 12 verses for you, and I mentioned the same thing 12 times, you would think that's pretty important. So let, let, me, let me break it down for you. Um, the church sometimes is referred to as her or she or the body, so I'm going to try to emphasize the church as we go through. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the church. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for the church so that he might sanctify the church having cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that the church would be holy and blameless So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it 
just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of the church. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, think with me what that passage just said. God is saying to you husbands, if you are the head of your wife, for you to be a biblical head of your wife, you've got to understand how Christ is the head of the church. And how are you going to understand how Christ is the head of the church if you're not in the church to see his headship? If you're not the church, understanding how he functions as the head. And wives, you're to submit yourself to the head, to your husband as you as the church does to Christ. So how are you going to understand that submission if you don't ever see the church submit to Christ? So you've got to be in the church and live as the church to understand this relationship between Christ and the church. And as you see that relationship, you will know then how to be a wife. But husbands, you can't be husbands, and wives, you can't be wives without an understanding and an active participation in the church. It reminded me of uh, last year's uh, number one country song. You probably all know it, got it? It's Girl Crush, all right? And the message of Girl Crush was that I want to be like that girl because that girl is kissing that man. And whatever she's doing, I want to figure out how to do that because if I could be like her, then maybe I could be kissing him. And God's saying something similar here. He says, I want you to fall in love with the church because if you could be a little more like the church, then you would be a little more in love with me. And a little more in love with your husband. And a little more in love with your wife. Instead of just having a crush on him or her, you've got to have this crush on the church. Because you're supposed to love like the church loves Christ. Or you're supposed to submit like the church submits to Christ. Or you're supposed to love like Christ loves the church. You see, you can't have this marriage that Christ is describing without an understanding of the church he is describing. And it seems we've missed that, that huge emphasis that's here, trying to come up with our own ideas of love, our own languages of love, our own descriptions of it, our own ideas of marriage, when God says, it's in the church. And I want you to do it as the church. So I want us to think about just the, the purpose of the church that's described here, the practice, uh, the production that's, that, that's here for us. I think you're going to come to the conclusion, if you get this, that every time you walk away from the church, you're walking away from that which helps your marriage. That the church is absolutely essential to understanding the marital love you're to have between you and your spouse. Let's, let's think about for a minute uh, Christ's purpose for the church. And imagine with me a marriage without a mission. Let's suppose we've got two people who got together and got married so that they could have a good marriage. A lot of people think that's why you should get married. I want to get married to have a good marriage, a good relationship with this person for the rest of my life. Imagine what that looks like. One evening comes around and husband says to the wife, what do you want to do tonight? She says, I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? We've all been there. And, well, we could uh, watch TV. Well, we could go for a walk. Well, we could go to the movies. Well, we could, we could read a book. We could just drink a glass of wine and chill. 
I don't know. What do you want to do? And so that's, that's where you are. And there's, there's no direction. There's no particular mission or focus. It's, I don't know. You don't know. And sometimes it's, I don't care. And you don't care. So where does that get you? Now, imagine another way. Imagine that you didn't get married just to have a good marriage. Imagine you got married for mission. Imagine you got married for a ministry. And imagine that ministry and that mission was to build up the church. That I got married to love like Christ loves the church. And I got married to be missional, to be like the church is to Christ. Then you say, well, honey, what do you want to do tonight? I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, let's think about our mission. Let's think about our ministry. Of course, you wouldn't say it that way. But anyway, let's think about it. You know, we, we could call up some of the church and have them over for drinks and just talk and pray. Or we could go visit someone and tell them, you know, that's in our church, tell them um, some stories and just hang out and encourage and fellowship. Or we might just call somebody on the phone and, and pray with them. Or we could think about people outside of our home ministry group, our box, and how we might include them. Or, or maybe tonight we'll just plan. We'll have a night of planning. We won't do anything but plan on who we need to and can minister to most and how we need to do that. Or maybe we'll just have a night to plan how to train up our son and daughter to be churchmen. Because if they're not churchmen, they won't be good husbands and wives. And we certainly want them to be a good husband and a good wife. And they can't love like a husband needs to love. And they can't love like a wife needs to love if they don't understand Christ in the church. So why don't we take some time to think through, are we training them to be good churchmen? You see, all of a sudden, the discussion, you may be doing the same things, but now it's got focus, it's got purpose, it's got mission that you're living as the church, and the marriage grows stronger. Back in Ephesians verse four, chapter 4, verse 16, it says, the whole body being fitted and held together, so that's you and me, by what every joint supplies. So every one of us, we're called joints here, we supply something according to the proper working of each individual part or joint. And what does, that, what does that do? It causes the growth of the body to the building up of itself in love. I want us to think about that. Every part of the body of Christ functioning to build up other parts of the body of Christ in love. Christ in and with the church has a purpose First of all, put on your outline for, for God's purpose of household worship. And I want to see how this ministry in marriage affects the church and will affect your marriage. Look with me at um, Abraham, the father of our faith. Genesis 18, verse 19. Genesis 18, verse 19 Genesis 18 obviously follows Genesis 17. Genesis 17 is where we have circumcision instituted. And circumcision was supposed to occur at eight days old. God says, I want you to mark out your household. The early church, when it started, was not collective individuals. It was colonies of families. Families that have been marked out by circumcision. The whole household is now under God's rule and reign and is declared we as a household, we've all been marked out, we'll worship the one true God. So that just happened, chapter 17, verse, chapter 18, verse 19, God says, And I have chosen him, that's Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So Abraham, as the head of his household, is now required and responsible not just to mark them out through circumcision which we do now through baptism 
but he is to command them. He's supposed to engage them in household worship. We are to worship the one true God. We are to follow him. We are to obey his commands. Uh, that's our responsibility. And so him and his wife are now on a mission. They have a ministry to their household. And their household ministry is training up the next generation, their children. So they're focused. And that was God's design for marriage. Look at uh, Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Psalm 78. You see this household focus on to the children. Trust me, I'm going to get somewhere with all this. You're going to see it. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Listen, it says, O my people, to my instruction, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known. And our fathers have told us. So he's beginning to introduce what I'm about to tell you my daddy told me. And my daddy's dad told him. He says, verse 4, we will not conceal them from their children. So we're about to tell our children. This is our mission. This is what heads of households do. Remember, husbands, you're the head of the wife, head of the family. This is what we do. Tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. Household worship, praise. And his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed the law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. He started with Abraham. Abraham, you are commanded to teach your children. That the, Verse 6, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born. So you just got married, you don't have children yet. Even the children you, you yet have, it's still your job that they may arise and tell to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So there he mentions unfaithful generations. you got families who don't do this and families that do it. But the families who do it are the ones God is blessing here. You get this responsibility as parents to teach your children. Now, turn to 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Here's the unequal yoke passage. I want, to sh I want to show you why it's here. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18. We see this sometimes, and we think it's just something to throw out there while you're dating. Make sure you're not unequally yoked. But I want you to take it into marriage with me. 2 Corinthians 6. Believers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols, for we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now stop there and think about this. This is worship language, temple language. It says, don't be unequally yoked together, because when you get yoked together, and you put a yoke on oxen so that they can work without friction, so that they can plow, so that they can be on a mission assignment when you get yoked you are yoked for the purpose of worship how are you possibly going to worship the one true god how are you possibly going to train the next generation if y'all don't worship the same gods you're going to have a divided mission you're going to have a divided ministry you're going to be fighting for what should be done tonight Instead of being on the same mission, having the same focus of training up the next generation and building up the church. So you must be equally yoked. And the, the yoke here is, is, a, is a yoke for worship. A yoke for ministry. It's not so that you can get along. 
but that, so that you can work and work and make the marriage stronger. Uh, church doesn't work without families coming together for the purpose of worship, for the purpose of ministry, to building up the church. The church is integral to understanding marriage. It's integral to understanding family and what's supposed to take place. Well, don't just think about household worship and that's part in the church. Think about gender roles. Where do gender roles get taught? If it's not the church. Well, we, we're in a cut culture now that I'm not sure we've got two genders anymore. What, what are we up to? 36, 78, it's some, something crazy. I still only see two of you out there, males and females. But we're in a culture that says there are lots of gender options. Where would we find the solution on that and what would teach us? It's, it's in the church. It's in God's Word that that comes back. Let me just show it to you pragmatically. Uh, because you, you have these roles. Fathers, this is what you're supposed to do. Wives, this is what you're supposed to do. We see it in Ephesians 5. Husbands, this is how you're supposed to love. Wives, this is how you're supposed to respect. You begin to see roles play out. And God always addressing males and females. Well, look at Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 4. It's the last statement coming into the New Testament. And six it says, Behold, stop, look at this. This is what's going to happen in your future. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, why is that important? They go through 400 silent years. They've gone into exile. They've gone back to their land. Their temple gets rebuilt. Their temple gets destroyed again. And they're waiting for the Messiah to come. And they, they don't really have a Jewish city like they had. They don't have the Jewish temple like they have. The worship of God has, is going through a very dark period. And why is it going through that dark period? Because dads are not teaching their generation and the next generation. We're falling away from household worship. We're falling away from the corporate worship. And it says, before Jesus comes, I'm going to send you a prophet who's going to preach to dads. And he's going to tell the dads it's time to quit being selfish. It's time to quit being individualistic. It's time to get involved in your children's lives. And I'm going to turn dads back to their children and the responsibility they have with their children, just like I commanded, commanded Abraham and every generation after that. And I'm going to turn the children to listening to the dads. And, of course, Elijah that he's referring to there, Jesus says that's John the Baptist. Uh, look at Luke chapter 1. And we see John the Baptist come on the scene. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. It says, The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And this is key, verse 16. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. See, they've been wandering away. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the Spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. All right, if you're going to be prepared to worship Jesus, somebody needs to be talking about worship. 
And nobody's been doing that for 400 years, basically. So well, John the Baptist shows up, and he starts preaching to the dads, turn, repent, get back in line, start teaching your kids how to worship God. What have you been doing? You're the head of your household. It's time to start doing what God has called and designed you to do. And children, obey your parents. Start paying attention. Because the Lord's coming, and we need to be ready to worship. You see this, this headship modeled. You see the responsibility of husbands. You see this mission and ministry of the home and marriage. And it's all about building up the church of Christ, under Christ. Now, I focused on the male role. Look at the, the, the female's role a little bit that's given to us in Scripture. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. It... it uh, baffled me when I finally saw this threefold love that's mentioned here and and why in the world you would even need to say it but but it's here um, Titus chapter 2 beginning at verse 3 it says older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior not malicious gossips not enslaved to much wine teaching what is good so that they may and here's Here's what they're to do with the other wives. To encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, and to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, see, three things women are supposed to love here. are supposed to love your husband, love your children, and love this work at home. I'm thinking, why would you need to say that? Do not women just do that naturally? Well, apparently not. Just like men just don't do naturally this whole headship thing and command their children to worship. But together, if men do what they're supposed to do and women do what they're supposed to do, you've got this focus on the home, and in the home, a love and respect for the head teaching worship. Teaching the kids and the next generation, we are to be the church of the living God. And we're to be worshiping Him and obeying Him and following Him because there's no salvation outside the church. Christ loves His church and saves His church. And that's who we are. That's who we must be. And we've got to teach that and train that. Where do you learn that? You learn it in the church. You learn it in a home that's married for ministry. Uh, back in Ephesians... God's purpose for family ministries. Well, actually, I'm going to turn to 1 Peter. It just it hit me as Peter gives the role of the wife, which we looked at, and the role of the husband, which we looked at. The very next thing is, is, is like the role of the family. 1 Peter chapter 3, remember verses 1 through 7, uh, the first six verses on wives, what, what are you to do? Verse 7, husbands, what are you to do? And then verse 8 of 1 Peter 3, to some up all of you well now he's gone it's not just saying husbands and wives but all of you who who just got included well at least the children and maybe singles in the church but to sum up all of you be harmonious sympathetic brotherly kind-hearted humble in spirit not returning evil for evil insult for insult but ministry giving a blessing instead for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And then it goes down, verse 15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. There's the evangelism text. It says people are basically supposed to be knocking on your door saying, Why aren't you so hopeful? Why is your life so different than mine? Can you give me an answer? What's the secret? And why would somebody be knocking on your door asking you for the secret? Because 
The husband is loving his wife like he's supposed to. The wife is loving her husband like she's supposed to. The kids are obeying mom and dad like they're supposed to. And they're all involved in ministry, giving out blessings and so thrilled to do it. And when that happens, I mean, just imagine you see this family at the mall. You see this family at a concert. You see this family on the street just in some public venue. And you say, why are they different? What is it about them that's so joyful, that seems so purpose-driven, that seems so, you know, just together? I want to have what they've got. And God says, people are going to see that because that's, that's, that's a focus like Christ has for the church and like the church has for Christ. And that's the secret to this, this wonderful family, to this wonderful marriage, is, 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 is us all doing what God has called us to do for the building up of the church in love. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring other people in as well. Think about God's purpose for children. Why would non-Christian parents care about training children? Don't have to. They don't have any command that says do it. And so you have a lot of non-Christians say, well, I'm just going to let my kids decide for themselves whether they want to be smart or not. Okay, I'm just going to let them figure it out. But we have in the Scripture, starting in Deuteronomy 6, it says, parents, teach your kids that there's one true God. It's the first thing. And talk about that when you go down at bed at night or when you rise up or when you walk to do your chores. Your goal as a husband and wife is to be training up your kids. Back in Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to get to the parenting series coming up. Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline, nurture, and instruction of the Lord. That's ministry. And we're told as, as husbands and wives to hear specifically fathers again, focused on his headship, he's to, to train his children and to bring them up. We're not to leave our children just to wander and aimlessly and raise themselves or train themselves. We train them specifically, and we train them specifically to be gods in ministry to God, to be built up together, every joint supplying that which builds up the church. So our roles build up the church. Our, our purpose for our children builds up the church. Our household assignments build up the church. Our whole purpose for community uh, comes from the church. And if, you, if you didn't have the church, where would you learn respect for others? In the church, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, I love uh, the descriptions that are given here. 1, John, 1 Timothy chapter 5 says, Don't sharply rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father, and to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and to the younger women as sisters, in all purity. So widows as widows. And it goes on, but it says, there's a certain kind of respect you learn in the church. You learn to respect the older, and you learn to respect the younger, whether it's male or whether it's female. You, you treat one another with respect. Why? Because our goal is to build one another up, to supply ministry to one another in love, so that the church, the household, of God is built up. Well, I hope you're beginning to see how all of these assignments God's given us, it, it gives purpose to marriage. Marriage exists for household worship. Marriage exists to train up kids. Marriage exists to glorify and honor God. Marriage exists to be an answer for the world. Marriage exists to to build community and respect in the body of Christ. Once you have this, this focus, this mission, this ministry, your marriage becomes enriched. Instead of uh, 
fighting for what you want or she wants. You're fighting together. You're on the same team. You're fighting to accomplish a mission and a ministry in life. And that makes you stronger. It creates the bond. It's tighter. Whenever you work with somebody together on a, a joint mission, it just strengthens you. And many marriages are, are faltering because they don't have that mission. They don't even know what it is. That's why I said, working with my wife, using her gifts, my gifts together on the same mission, it just strengthens us. And, and we come to conclusions week after week. I couldn't do this without you. And life is so much more wonderful with you because we're working on the same thing. Coming about it using our distinctive roles and gifts and abilities. Now, think about that from just the practicality of the church. And what I've done for you is uh, I've given you a long list in your out, uh, outline of the job description of the church. Think about it this way. Just as God said to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for families to be alone. We need one another. And look up in your concordance, or you Google, one another. We need one another. What I did for you is I already looked it up, and I have given you my exhaustive list of every time in the Bible the phrase, New Testament, the phrase one another is found. And this is the church's job description because this is what we're to do one an, to one another. It doesn't say, women, this is what you're to do. Men, this is what you're to do. Preacher, this is what you're to do. This is what one another, this is what we are to do. Let me just read the list and you think about this a minute. You and I are equipped and resourced to do these things. Love one another. That's the biggest and the most repeated. We're to show the same care for one another. Be kind to one another. Be hospitable to one another. Show tolerance for one another. Be submissive to one another. Serve one another. If y'all have time, I'll read all the references too. Okay. I think you're, you're glad for the shorthand? Okay. Fellowship with one another. Do not complain against one another. Do not lie to one another. Be humble to one another. Teach and admonish one another. Encourage one another. Stimulate one another. Honor one another. Worship, <coughs> speaking and singing with uh, song to one another. Forgive one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Share one another's burdens. Be at peace with one another. Be members one of another. Devoted to one another. Give preference to one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Do not judge one another. Greet one another. Wait for one another. All right, don't want anybody to say you don't know what to do. That's the church's job description. But if you were to ask people down at Walmart, go to Walmart parking lot and take a survey, say, what do you think the church's job is? What will you think the survey will say? You know, most people are like, because we, we're in a culture that really doesn't know. We think we go to church to get something. We don't know that we are called to be the church to be focused on ministry. And look at the ministry that was just described. I mean, make it even simpler. We're to, to love, kind, hospitable, uh, be tolerant, be submissive, serve, fellowship with, don't complain, you know, encourage, be humble, stimulate, honor, you, you start looking at that, then, then, then let me ask you, how many marriages do you think would fail if every single week they were being loved, encouraged, honored, stimulated, forgiven, not judged, built up? You see the job description? And you come to church... And the church is having this kind of collective impact on you? You're not alone. You're not isolated. You're ministered to. And, and see, the only way for this to happen 
is heads of the households, mothers being submissive to this and working through this, you get together, let's say Saturday sometime. And as a household, you say, okay, tomorrow is the Lord's day. How will we minister? Who will we encourage? Who will we honor? Who will we wait on? Who will we be hospitable to? Who will we teach and admonish? I mean, there's certain things you're gifted and equipped and resourced to do. And as the church, that becomes your focus and your mission and your ministry. And it's not, well, what do you want to do today? I don't know. What do you want to do? It's more, what has Christ called us to do? And how, as this household team of ministers, how will we accomplish it? And so what you have is kids being trained up to minister, to be churchmen. What you have is a wife and a husband on the same team, focused on the same mission and getting excited about the successes and the victories of building up the church. That's how God's designed it. And and those who get it and those who do it, they, they throw out the option that church is optional. It's part of our mission. It's part of our ministry. We, we must meet together. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves as is the habit of some. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. But we will gather together to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. And we have a people focus on this. And that's what, it's one of the things, there's enough of us doing it in this room. It's one of the things that makes this church so fun and so exciting is there's such a receptivity by you, I know, to, to be ministers. And it's so excited from this uh, theater, what you give me kind of concept of the church that so many people are caught up in. Well, let me say it to you another way. Let's say there are 12 Holy Spirit gifts. We don't really know how many. There's, there's a lot, but there's, there's lists in the Scripture, but none of the lists seem to be exhaustive, so I can't give you a, a definitive answer. What is your spiritual? I can tell you probably what your spiritual gift is, but I can't, I can't give you an exhaustive list of the spiritual gifts. So since I can't do that, I can't nail it down how many. Let's just, let's just for the sake of argument, let's say there's 12, okay? Somewhere about that, that God's given us a list of. But he can expand his list, and I trust him to do that. Twelve gifts. You've got one, and your spouse has one. How many are left? Ten. Right? So you use your gift to minister to your spouse. Your spouse uses their gift to minister to you. But you don't have the other ten. Now, some people may have two or three gifts. To whom much is given, much is required. But let's say you you only got one. You try to minister to one another. You need the church to fully minister. And the church needs you. Now, I've got a preaching, teaching gift. You don't have. So you need my gift. You need me to show up. I need you to show up because I don't have your gift. Together, we've got all 12. But as a family, if I'm just married, no kids, I only got two. Once I have kids, I may have three or four. But I still don't have all 12 until my family gets together with the church. And as the church, I have the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit to encourage and help and stimulate and love and hold me accountable and admonish and wait for me and be hospitable to me. That whole job description that's given to the church. Everybody using their gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, for the common good. For the building up together, or Ephesians 4, verse 16, every joint supplying their part for the building up of the whole for the common good. Now, this is what happens. Somebody comes to me and says, David, I I think I need to get a divorce. Why? Well, she's just not meeting my needs. I mean, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, and she just doesn't respond, and it's just not working for me anymore. 
Or same with the wife. The wife comes and says, it's just not working. I, I try and try and try to do everything you said to do. He just doesn't meet my needs. It just doesn't work. And I sit there and I say, you're exactly right. And they look at me and say, oh, thank you, preacher. Finally found somebody who agrees with me. And I'm saying, no, you don't understand. God never designed your spouse to meet all your needs. And you just told me your spouse did not meet all your needs. I agreed. Your spouse cannot meet all your needs because you got a gift, she's got a gift. That's only two. You need 12. Your spouse will never meet all your needs. Go to somebody else, fall in love with them, get married all over again, and you'll be right back here in 10 years and say, she doesn't meet my needs. Because she was never designed to meet all your needs. And he was never designed to meet all your needs. You need the church to meet all the needs. Your problem is not you are in love or in marriage to the wrong spouse. Your problem is that you are not an active participant in the local church. And I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm talking about one who fulfills the job description of the church. See, then you have the fullness of the Spirit. Then your needs are getting met, and you don't even realize it, but your needs won't get met until you're focused on not getting your needs met, but focused on mission, focused on ministry for Christ. In the role, in the area you've been gifted, so that everyone's built up, so that you're fulfilling the part that you've been designed to fulfill for the building up of the church in love. The church keeps marriage productive. God, this, I'm, I've run out of time. I know. I'm sorry. I, I, I wanted to read all those references and really get you thinking. I think there's a great need for a series on the church, but who's going to listen? We're in a culture that doesn't want to hear what we do. We just want to hear what we get. But there's so much to do. You need the ministry of the church to fulfill the marriage. The church is given something specifically nobody, no other institution is given. It's given the word of God to preach and teach when we gather together corporately. You and I need the preaching and teaching of the word of God because as the word is proclaimed, the spirit works on us like no other time. I love it when people um, get the CDs or download sermons and say, I heard this, heard that, and I say, I'm great, I'm glad you can do that. But at the same time, there's something you miss by not being in the sanctuary. You're hearing the Word, but you're not hearing in the fullness of the Spirit. With all of the body of Christ, there's something that happens in the preaching moment that's spiritual. Where your heart hears God. Say, yeah, I, I need that. I need to do something with that. We need it. And we need the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. We need the church because the church is the only institution that has these two sacraments. And in, every time we have the Lord's Supper, which is one of the reasons we have it every week, both of these sacraments require reflection, require examination. Examine yourself to see whether or not you take it rightly. And that's necessary for us to grow and be built up in love. To, to look at Christ and examine ourselves. So these sacraments are given for a spiritual moment of reflection. I mean, I don't have the time to take you through the Scripture to say, grow up into Christ. And Christ has ordered preaching and teaching. Christ has ordered the sacraments for us to grow up into Christ. And He's also given us church discipline. Church discipline is us admonishing and teaching one another, holding one another accountable to become more and more like Christ. And there's no other place it happens but in the body of Christ. And that's why I say I know a secret to wonderful and good marriages. It's this thing called active participation in the local church. It's being the church. Because I need to love like the church and respect like the church and be loved like Christ loves the church and respected like Christ respects his bride. Well, I'll just leave you with one last illustration. 
Think of an ember of wood. I don't care. Make it a log of wood that's burning. I don't care how big you are, okay? But you take the log out of the fire, or you take the ember out of the fire, use tongs, it'll be safer. You know, let's pick it up, and let's move it over here on some concrete slab where nothing else catches fire. What happens to that ember that was burning hot? What happens to it when we set it out of the fire? Slowly goes out, right? It burns, and, and it not only does it go out, it leaves a really messy, trashy wood, charred. But if it stays in the fire, it burns and burns and burns until it's completely used up. Because we need one another to stay ablaze. We need one another. We need to be giving to one another and receiving from one another to spend and be spent for Christ. As soon as we get out of that organism, God calls the church and says, well, I'm just going to do my thing. And How many times have you seen a couple going through divorce and one of them just falls out of the church? And when you put that ember outside, it goes out. You're losing the life of your marriage when you lose the life of the church. Let's pray together. Father, there's, there's so much new territory really to think about how our marriages are connected to your marriage to us, to the church. You screamed the message 12 times in Ephesians 5 and yet... We get so self-centered and looking at ourselves and missing this glorious picture of Christ's love for His church and all you do in your church and all you've designed. And Lord, help us to get back. We needed John the Baptist to call us to repentance and turn fathers back to their children and children back to their fathers. Father, we ask that you would do this work in our church, in this family, to a greater degree. We see it among many, but do it to a greater degree that others ask for the hope within us and see Christ's love for his church, see that he laid down his life for her and redeems. Father, help us to deal with our sins and help us to deal with our new path of obedience. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.